But I just don't see that it really benefits Israel in general because transforming essentially a de facto annexation into a de jure annexation certainly isn't promoting Israel's cause around the world, but also doesn't necessarily seem to change very much on the ground for certainly for Israeli citizens, it changes almost nothing. And um, other than, you know, inflaming um, Palestinian leadership, it doesn't really seem to significantly change any calculus about coming back to a peace table. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. One of the most important political issues in Israel, and perhaps that which is most fraught with danger, is Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's plan to annex up to 30% of the West Bank. The annexation will include largely Jewish areas, as well as the strategically vital Jordan Valley, and will enable Israel to change the calculus on the ground vis-a-vis the Palestinians, perhaps permanently. On the other hand, the international community has vocally condemned any such unilateral move, and the Palestinian Authority has threatened Israel with a violent reaction. Is the annexation plan a brilliant idea, or a foolhardy move that will backfire? What are the positives and what are the negatives? How will it impact Israel moving forward? And how can it impact Israel's relationship with the United States? To answer these and other questions, I spoke with Dr. Sarah Yael Hershorn, the Visiting Assistant Professor in Israel Studies at the Crown Family Center for Jewish and Israel Studies at Northwestern University. Her expertise focuses on diaspora-Israel relations, the Arab-Israeli conflict, and the Israeli ultranationalist movement. Her first book, City on a Hilltop, American Jews and the Israeli Settler Movement, was the winner of the 2018 Sammy Rohr Prize in Jewish Literature Choice Award and a finalist for the 2017 National Jewish Book Award. Dr. Hershorn previously was a university research lecturer in Israel studies at the University of Oxford. Dr. Hershorn, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum. I'm really honored to have you on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start off with a relatively straightforward question, just to set a baseline. Regardless of whether the plan goes through or doesn't go through, what exactly is the annexation plan that Prime Minister Netanyahu has been talking about for the past few months? What is it? Well, that seems to be the 64 million uh, shekel question, uh, seeing as we don't actually know what the parameters of that plan would be. Um, it could be something at, uh, quite minimalist, or it could be a annexation plan as maximalist is annexing some 30% of the West Bank to territorial Israel. From what we know, Prime Minister Netanyahu laid out four different plans to some of his closest advisors that represented um, all of those possibilities and, and those in between. But the truth is, is that the public or and the Israeli settler movement itself has never fully learned the details of the plan that Netanyahu was proposing. Well, why is it so ambiguous? Why is he not telling anyone what he has in mind? Well, I think part of the reason that uh, he is so ambiguous is because he himself is somewhat undecided, but also because this annexation plan needed to be deeply coordinated with the United States, which was responsible for a joint mapping commission, which to date apparently has never completed its process. After 11 years as prime minister, Netanyahu suddenly put annexation on the table when, at least previously, it never seemed to be a serious consideration, or if anything, he discounted the possibility. What changed? I know that the Trump peace plan is certainly something that's different. At the same time, moving full steam ahead, 
perhaps even without the permission or approval of the United States, seems to be something new. Is this, would you say, personal political calculus, or is this something that Netanyahu actually really believes? Well, I think there are a few factors at play. The first is that over the course of Netanyahu's now 11-year prime ministership, the issue of annexation moved from the fringes of the ultranationalist right into mainstream discourse. So this was a slow but steady process that um, has accelerated over the course of his prime ministership. And it's very hard, I think, for him not to take notice of this, especially as it has become an important electoral issue for parties in a right-wing security bloc that are critical to the stability of his coalition. Secondly, during the term of his uh, course of his administration, um, you know, there's been no progress in peace talks with the Palestinians. Um, And the question of Israel's unilateral moves, whether that be annexation or something else, I think has gained ground within um, discourse in Israel only in response to the idea that there may be no bilateral peace talks between Israelis and Palestinians, possibly even for a generation. So some new thinking about what could occur um, has, I guess, arised out of the dint of necessity. And the third, I guess, is the Trump peace plan, which obviously has put permission to consider this very dramatic act on the table um, in a big way that has never been seen before and certainly was not seen during the Obama, the eight years of the Obama administration, which coincided with the first, you know, eight, essentially eight years of the Netanyahu administration. Right. Um, so I think it's changed the calculus for Israeli leadership. Personally, I don't think that Benjamin Netanyahu is deeply committed to this plan, but I do think that he has certain political considerations that may necessitate it for his political future. Well, I want to ask you about option two that you put on the table just now about the idea of, well, we don't know if anything is going to progress with the Palestinians for generations, perhaps, and it certainly hasn't been progressing for a long time. I've heard some commentators suggest that annexation is not really going to happen. This is a ruse, almost, it's designed to get the Palestinian leadership back to the table with lowered expectations, perhaps, almost the way I would describe it. Back in the 80s, when Star Wars was the the strategic defense initiative proposed by the Reagan administration was the big issue. A lot of people say, you know something, Reagan knew that it was never going to happen. He was just trying to get the Soviets to make a move and outspend themselves. Whether that's true or not, is that possibly what's happening over here, that really it's just an attempt to try and change the rules of the game without ever actually doing it? So I've heard this theory as well, and it seems to um, emanate from Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law and close advisor. But I would warn that this isn't a real estate deal. You don't try and bring people to the table by saying, hey, I'm going to undercut you by 30%. Why don't you try and provide a counterproposal? Thus far, we haven't seen this um, as a particularly successful way in bringing the Palestinians uh, closer to either uh, Israel or the Trump administration. If anything, it is just further convinced them that the United States is a uh, unfair broker and that Israel has no intent to um, provide a kind of peace because uh, when 92% of the best bank did not, you know, was suggested that you know Israel's maximal offer will not meet Palestinian minimal demands, certainly even less does not seem to be particularly uh, reassuring to the Palestinian leadership. Let's talk about the plan of annexation from the perspective of its proponents. What's the advantage, according to those people who believe that it's a good idea? So I I think people who believe it's a good idea believe that this may be Israel's best and even only chance to try try to redraw the map um, and to unilaterally separate themselves from either um, a ambiguous Palestinian entity or even a future Palestinian state that essentially Israel will be able to annex the 
real estate and security zones that it feels are essential to a just and durable peace in the future, and that the Palestinians will have some degree of separation from Israel that they've never had, and perhaps even in the future autonomy and statehood. So from their perspective, it essentially ends the Israel-Palestine conflict, if in a unilateral fashion, and certainly is a boon to Israel's security and also um, makes, I guess, short order of the question of settlements for the future. When you say it's a boon to Israel's security, what are you referring to in particular? I think in particular, this is the question of whether Israel would enact some or all of the Jordan Valley Rift, which mm-hmm. is always seen as critical to its security. Of course, the Kingdom of Jordan has raised some serious red flags in the last several weeks about this plan. But um, I think at the very least, the, um, you know, Israel would attempt to install early warning stations or other other security mechanisms to um, have surveillance over this zone, because there's almost no one who works in the Israeli political or military establishment that doesn't feel that this strip of land would be necessary for Israel to maintain uh, security into the future. So from the perspective of Israelis who are against annexation, where is that position coming from? In other words, is it purely from a sense of we're being unfair to the Palestinians, or is there something about their feeling about it being a negative, a net negative for Israel itself? Well, I think there are two two separate issues. One is the existential question of how big do you think the Palestinian needs, state needs to be to be viable, and is Israel essentially, you know, whittling that away? The second is whether large Palestinian populations who live in cities and villages within some of the zones that Israel is considering to annex could be unilaterally annexed to Israel, either without citizenship or forced to take Israeli citizenship, essentially at the uh, you know, essentially upon Israeli demand, and then leave the remaining Palestinian population in some kind of ambiguous status with still with no rights, but possibly no path to citizenship either in a future Palestinian state. So for them, this is, you know, going down um, a very dark road towards the end of Israeli democracy, or at least Israeli democracy over the green line. I would distinguish between, you know, what's happening within territorial Israel and what's uh, beyond the green line. Well, that's actually the point I was thinking about that I want to specifically ask you about. When you distinguish what's going on in green line Israel, in traditional Israel, shall we call it, pre-1967 Israel, and these annexed territories, should it happen— Prime Minister Netanyahu has said that Palestinians living in that 30 percent or whatever it is that Israel plans to annex will not receive Israeli citizenship. And full disclosure, one of the aspects of the program or of the plan, which has been most disturbing to me personally, is this claim that they will not receive citizenship. From my perspective, you have to have it one way or the other. You either don't annex and don't give them citizenship or annex and grant them citizenship. But by annexing and not granting them citizenship, you are giving power and justification, perhaps, to those people who claim that Israel is assuming apartheid qualities. It's one thing to say that these territories are they're disputed, they're occupied, call it what you will, therefore we're not offering citizenship. I get that. But once it's part of Israel proper and to say they won't have citizenship— how is that justified, both on a political and a moral level, for the right? And what's your opinion about that? Am I off base? So first, I would say that both Netanyahu and Benny Gantz have tried um, have tried to, I guess, reassure the Israeli public, although certainly frighten the Palestinian public, that they want to draw a map that would leave Palestinian cities and villages, for the most part, under this ambiguous future entity that um, and try to absorb as few Palestinians into Israel as possible, mostly because they don't want to be confronted with those kinds of dilemmas. But certainly, if you are taking a piece of real estate and making it part of your nation state, 
then those people who live there um, need to be accorded the rights of your nation state. And in, in the case of Israel, that includes voting and citizenship. Uh, you know, Israel is a democracy. Um, and if you are going to hold certain populations in a separate status from the Jewish Israeli population, then I think you're really heading down a dark road. Or even the Arab Israeli population, for that matter. Do you think that there is a serious danger for Israel vis-a-vis the international community, should it take place and should the move be condemned, which it inevitably would be? So first of all, I think the the biggest danger is ironically amongst states that have been Israel's traditional enemies. Um, Warming relationship with uh, Saudi Arabia and the Gulf uh, will certainly be undermined by this, though um, I think, you know, even those states um, have, you know, been somewhat wishy-washy in their commitment to the Palestinian cause in recent years. So it's hard to say how much damage will be done, but right. certain several open letters have been published, particularly with by the UAE and other countries, um, suggesting that this will, you know, this will put the brakes on the process of normalization. Most critically, however, I think is Israel's relationship with its immediate neighbors, which it requires for its own security needs, those being Egypt and Jordan, which are, um, you know, completely opposed to uh, any annexation. And the international community will um, absolutely condemn this move uh, in, in, in the lead up to it with nothing having happened yet. It has um, already begun to outline some of the steps that it might take should this uh, policy come to pass. The truth is, is that some members of the international community that condemn Israel over annexation are condemning Israel about just about everything else that's happening anyway. So I'm not so it's hard what to else say is what new? the additional level of damage would be. But certainly this will inflame, inflame tensions and I think also accelerate the cause, which we've already seen towards the unilateral declaration of Palestinian statehood, towards support for, you know, a, another intifada and generally undermine Israel's position in the international community um, at a time where it really can't uh, risk that. Uh, kind of condemnation. So I think it's a it's a policy that doesn't seem to yield a lot. It's a, it's a very surprising policy because it doesn't really seem to yield a lot of benefits for Israel right now. But it certainly will, um, you know, I think trigger an upheaval, condemnation, and um, repercussions. So I want to ask you about both those points. When you say it doesn't necessarily give Israel so much, but it also seems to trigger all sorts of problems. Let me look at the second one first and offer a different scenario. Before, for example, President Trump moved the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, there were all sorts of doomsday scenarios, which I frankly was really scared of being here in Israel. There's going to be another intifada, who knows what. And frankly, they didn't pan out. Now we hear the same thing, that which you mentioned from the international community, strengthening BDS, the idea of Jordan perhaps revoking its uh, peace treaty with Israel, the uh, downgrading of ties with other Arab nations like Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states. Who knows what could happen? And yet, is there a possibility? Obviously, it's possible. But is it likely that this is all empty threat and ultimately the world is going to keep on turning and really in the end, no one's actually going to care? Yeah, I mean, um, first of all, it's going to depend on the extent of the annexation. I think certainly a much more minimalistic annexation, which is actually what I would predict will would occur if anything takes place this summer versus a more maximalist approach will you know trigger a different level of response. But, you know, certainly the question of nation states annexing or seizing territory of other nation states is happening all over the world as we speak. Russia has annexed the Crimea. Um, We can look at various other occupations that are happening. Uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan are currently at war again over a small slice of territory that they they have been fighting over. So this question, um, in a universal sense, doesn't seem to attract much international attention. You know, the world keeps spinning regardless of what's going on in, you know, Nagorno-Karabakh on a daily, day-to-day basis. 
Yeah, but this involves Jews, so it's a little bit different. I think the issue which makes things different is this concerns, you know, the state of the Jews or the Jewish state. And because of that, because of everything that Israel does, um, it attracts more international attention for sometimes even the same forms of international behavior as other nation states. Now I'm going to ask you about the other thing that you mentioned in terms of how does it actually benefit Israel? For example, when Israel extended sovereignty to the Golan quite a while back, that hasn't stopped numerous administrations in Israel from offering the Golan or most of the Golan back to Syria. The fact that Israel extends sovereignty or annexes an area doesn't really mean anything, it seems, in the long term. It's a declaration that doesn't necessarily carry long-term political weight. So why would this be different or is it not any different? I don't think theoretically that it should be any different, but certainly the world seems to consider uh, the West Bank very differently, also partially because, you know, the the Golan Heights, um, by the time the uh, retroactive, you know, declaration was made by the Trump administration, I mean, it had been 30 years since Israel had actually formally annexed the Golan. Um, So I think it's partially an issue of timing. It's also an issue of, you know, what populations are involved here versus the Golan Heights. But I don't think that that doesn't mean that, you know, Israel couldn't trade some of this territory under a land for peace rubric down the road. But I just don't see that it really benefits Israel in general, because transforming essentially a de facto annexation into a de jure annexation certainly isn't promoting Israel's cause around the world, but also doesn't necessarily seem to change very much on the ground for certainly for Israeli citizens, it changes almost nothing. And um, other than, you know, inflaming um, Palestinian leadership, it doesn't really seem to significantly change any calculus about coming back to a peace table. So, Dr. Hirshhorn, as an expert on Israel and settlers and the entire situation here in the Middle East, what do you recommend? If you had the prime minister's ear, what would you suggest to Prime Minister Netanyahu that he do? Obviously, you're not fully in favor of annexation. Would you say drop it all together? Look, I think that, you know, if I'm looking for the perspective of real politique and not my own personal, you know, my personal politics, I'm not sure that Netanyahu, um, you know, Netanyahu has climbed up pretty far into a tree. So I'm not sure how easy it's going to be for him to drop this all together, despite, you know, the panic surrounding coronavirus pandemic. I think Israel's path to placate its domestic constituency while doing the least damage to its international reputation would be to annex some small piece of territory that is Jewish-Israeli only and would already have been part of both consensus of settlement blocks within Israel itself, but also been part of a peace agreement that had already essentially been agreed as part of the Oslo process that this would be blocks that could be swapped later for other parts of territorial Israel and and generally been part of the peace process. So, you know, if I was trying to, you know, sort of do damage control for the Netanyahu administration right now, without them toppling their coalition and um, uh, generally, um, you know, pushing for, um, you know, a more maximalist solution, which could happen if some, some, you know, some minimal demands are not met by Israel's own domestic political situation. I guess I, I personally think that what Netanyahu will do in the end is the next Male Admin and possibly maybe some part of the Gush Etzion region of the West Bank. Which areas that no uh, one really doubts will ever be part of Israel. Domestic constituencies might might satisfy some of those concerns. Now, let's say annexation doesn't happen, or even if it happens in a minimalist way, the way you just suggested. Do you foresee anything changing between Israel and the Palestinians over the next decade? Well, 
this threat has obviously not achieved the Jared Kushner dream solution of bringing the Palestinians back to the table. So I certainly see that, um, you know, even if it doesn't take place now, there's always this specter of Israeli annexation hanging over every conversation. And the Palestinians can easily, you know, take that to the United Nations and say, you know, we're being held hostage here. It's, you know, we do X or they annex. So I think that it'll become a very useful political tool for the Palestinians. In fact, it not happening is actually better for the Palestinians than it actually happening, because then they just have the threat that they can, um, you know, that that uh, that that will exist in perpetuity, essentially. Now, speaking about a slightly different subject in general, obviously, annexation is a direct response to the Trump administration's peace plan or Jared Kushner's peace plan, call it what you will, which Israel feels gives itself an opening, which it fears it will not have under a Biden administration. Certainly not. Now, one of the things that's worried me as someone living in Israel and who frankly does not like Trump, I've been very open about that. I've always worried that Prime Minister Netanyahu's aligning himself and implicitly Israel as well, with the Trump administration is dangerous and carries the danger of making Israel into a partisan issue that will be associated broadly with Republicans and perhaps even more narrowly with Trumpist Republicans. And that might destroy the bipartisan consensus that we must protect Israel. Is this a vain fear or is this a real problem, do you think? I think the cat's out of the box already. And to some extent, pretty catastrophic damage has already been done. Um, We can see that in various recent debates that the polarization is intense. Um, The bilateral consensus around Israel has declined. And I think that um, increasingly Jews are feeling uh, alienated by party politics or liberal Jews are feeling alienated by party politics in the United States that um, they see, you know, the left wing shift in the Democratic Party, which Biden himself will, despite the fact that he's, you know, a moderate centrist figure, will certainly, I think, have very little power to stem that tide. And the increasing, you know, tendencies of the Republican Party, white nationalism resurfacing, um, I think, you know, Jews themselves, especially Jewish Zionists, may find themselves being politically homeless. And the question of Israel will no longer maybe even be relevant to either party down the road. What do you mean either party? In what sense? Um, this This has inflicted a lot of damage. Why do you mean either party? How would this inflict damage on the Republicans vis-a-vis its support for Israel? Um, I mean, evangelical Christians remain supportive of Israel, but, you know, if the Republican Party, um, you know, continues to have infiltration by white nationalists who are no sympathetic, you know, who are not sympathetic to the Jews, um, although, you know, some have reasons to want to see the Jews essentially shipped off to Israel, um, you know, I think that's be a very dangerous trend as well, because, you um, that wing of the Republican Party as much as the evangelical wing has been emboldened during the Trump administration. You mentioned that Jews would be politically homeless as a result, but I want to ask about Jews themselves perhaps losing some of their own innate support for the state of Israel. I'm in Israel right now, so it's hard for me to gauge it, obviously, but I've heard that, and it certainly seems as though, a lot of Jews who are naturally on the left feel that their commitment to Zionism is weakening. Obviously, not everybody, but there's a. it seems to me there's a large proportion of Jews who perhaps in the past might have been more innately Zionist who now are questioning those ties. Is that true? Is that something that you see? Or is this still more individuals as opposed to a movement? Um, I think it's a generational shift. So it's certainly more, uh, more of a movement than it is of individuals. I think there are those who um, have become kind of, uh, you know, the patron saints or the Pied Pipers to this, uh, you know, to this new demographic. You know, we can only reference Peter Beinart's essay last week, which might be representative or emblematic of that phenomenon. But the students that I teach at my at university 
Um, today we're brewing after 2001, so that's after 9/11 and after the end of the, uh, you know, the end of the Oslo process and in the midst of the Second Intifada. They have absolutely no memory of what were the defining moments of, I guess, my childhood or my teenage years, which were the promise of peace in the Middle East. So for you know, a generation who spent the first 20 years of their lives seeing only a cycle of violence and only the kind of debates we've been having in the United States and elsewhere, I think it becomes a generational shift. However, though, I think attitudes towards Israel are also deeply entwined with attitudes towards Jewishness. And um, I think, you know, distancing from Israel is often not really about Israel. It's often about the connection to the Jewish tradition more generally. And we're also seeing that accelerating very rapidly in the United States. Um, so these attitudes about Israel are really maybe only a corollary to that in my mind. So let me ask you one final question about that. What would you recommend that Israel do if there is anything that Israel can do to stem this trend, to try and stop it both among younger Jews as well as among, I guess, Democrats in general or American voters in general to make sure that Israel still remains an emotionally resonant issue for all of them and they feel a natural support for Israel? And let me just explain, I don't mean support for the Likud party per se. Some people think that those are synonymous. I mean simply support for the Zionist project in whatever form it might be. Well, first of all, I'm sorry that it's become a politicized issue in Israel, but I think in general, the understanding that it's now Israel's time to give back to the diaspora um, and to um, try to strengthen Jewish education um, and otherwise create Jewish awareness, even that does not necessarily have to do with Israel in general, is is a logical approach. Unfortunately, um, it's been tied up with a certain set of political understandings and ideological understandings in Israel, particularly coming out of the Ministry of Diaspora Affairs and otherwise. But in general, I think the idea that this is a two-way street, that Israelis need to get to know America as much as Israelis need to get to know Israel, and that, you know, we both, uh, you know, and now it's, our, now it's turn for Israel to also give back to the diaspora is important. Um, so, so there's that. I think it's also important for Israel and Zionists and Jews more generally to meet the discourse on its own terms. So if we're going to talk about, you know, Israel being a, um, you know, a colonialist enterprise, let's talk about, you know, what every state at the end of the 19th century was doing. And let's also talk about Israel and Zionism being a national liberation movement, a, a movement that, stu- that stands against many of the values um, that, you know, the left is equally concerned about. Um, and to try and, you know, I think we need to, we need to, we need to play ball in the same ballpark. If we're having two different sets of conversations about what Israel means and what Zionism means to Israel's critics, we're doing ourselves no service. Um, and I think we need to try and articulate a new vision of liberal Zionism for the 21st century. And one not only that uses the terminology and vocabulary of the contemporary discourse, but also is packageable. We need to understand what is liberal Zionism in 144 characters or less, or what is liberal Zionism on Instagram or Pinterest or all those other TikTok, all those other venues that I know nothing about because (laughs) I'm too old for that. But, you know, if you want to engage millennials in this conversation, you need to be using the vocabulary they're using on the platforms they're using. And I don't see us doing that. And I frankly don't see anybody really taking on that challenge of a new liberal Zionism for the 21st century, because unfortunately, liberalism as much as liberal Zionism in general, liberal nationalism is under attack all over the world. And we're seeing an increasing polarization that your choices are only left or right. And I think we really need to dig in and try and find that middle ground, and particularly around Israel, to articulate a new vocabulary there. 
Dr. Sarah L. Hirschhorn, thank you very much for joining me today on the podcast. This has been really enlightening and I appreciate it. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. Look forward to uh, being here with you again in the future. Sounds great. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me. Please visit the Jewish Coffee House website at jewishcoffeehouse.com. You'll find some terrific podcasts there, along with my blog, and the opportunity to support Jewish Coffee House on Patreon, where you can get bonus podcasts like Ask the Rabbis, merch, and more. Follow me on Twitter. My handle is at JewishCoffeeH, and like the Jewish Coffee House Facebook page. See you next time. I'm Scott Kahn on the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com. <laughs>